Scott Cho, author of Wicked Fox, Vicious Spirits, and Once Upon a Cave Prom. The list is getting so long. <laughs> and I'm Clarville A. Ortega, author of Ghost Squad, Frizzy, and Witchlings. And this is Write or Die. <laughs> By next year, we're going to be like two hours later. And that's when the episode's yeah. going to start. Just listing everything we've ever worked on ever. <laughs> like, thank goodness we didn't list all of our anthologies. It would never end. Oh, forget end. it. It would never end. Yeah, people will be like, this podcast has really changed. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Um, How are you doing? Not good, bro. I'm not doing great. (laughs) Real talk. talk. This is Ride or Die. We talk about the truth. I've been, you know, I've been going through it. I think pretty much everybody has. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just been rough. I've been on deadline. I've been having mental health issues. I've been having issues with twitter and like social media um so yeah how about you uh samesies i think like both of us are going through that issue of like not only like being on deadline but being on multiple deadlines Mm -hmm. from multiple publishers which changes the game you know like when you're on more than one deadline for one publisher you can be like oh it's all penguin so they understand but yeah, when it's multiple different people, it's different. Um, I feel you on the on the Twitter thing. Actually, you know what's really timely is I just read this article speaking of social media and how it makes us feel like C-R-A-P. Wait, why did I spell that out? It makes us feel like crap. <laughs> um, I read this article where they <laughs> – don't laugh at me. They interviewed Kelly Marie Tran mm. um, because of that new Disney movie, Raya and the Dragon. Yeah. And they they specifically talked to her about how she had to leave social media because she was trolled by racists and misogynists Ugh. who like were awful to her for being cast in a lead role for Star Wars. And there's a quote that I had to share on social media um, about social media. <laughs> <laughs> and she pretty much says, if someone doesn't understand me or my experience, it shouldn't be my place to have to internalize their misogyny or racism or all of the above. Maybe they just don't have the imagination to understand there are different types of people living in the world. Whoa. And I was like snapping my fingers. I was like, yes, totally. That's so true. And But it also makes me really angry because like, she should have been able to like celebrate being cast in Star Wars and like like have fans and like interact with them and like make jokes and like see the memes and like see all the love for her yeah. as well. And it stinks that like that part of it was taken away from her because like mm-hmm. when it comes to like the cel- the celebratory part of it, like social media can be really, really fun. But yeah. then the other side of it is like it makes you want to just like not be on any like interact with humans at all because people can be so (laughs) awful but it just it kills me that that was taken away from her you know like she didn't get to experience that and even like you know John Boyega who's like another very like vocal person on social Mm -hmm. media but he's always having to fight people and like his social media is like so funny so much Mm -hmm. fun he brings so many so much people joy and like people really like interacting with him but at the same time it must take such a huge toll on his mental health that he's literally having to defend his humanity all the time Um, for sure there was another part of the article that reminded me of a conversation we had on book twitter actually recently so Kelly said, 
it felt like I was just hearing the voices of my agents and my publicity team and all of these people telling me what to say and what to do and how to feel. And I realized I didn't know how I felt anymore and I didn't remember why I was in this in the first mm-hmm. place. And in, um, I don't know if it reminds you of this, but it definitely reminded me of that conversation where like someone who I think was like an agent or an editor said like in order to be able to sell books, you have to have a social media presence these days. Yeah. And that started some discourse. Yeah. The the discourse was very intense on that day. Um, I think that like, obviously I'm, I'm like very on social media and like I help authors who want to improve like how they use social media so like I I recognize the benefits of it but it's also um it's also become a thing where it's like if we have to be on there it's 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 unfair in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways because we're already expected to do so much more than like what our job description (laughs) entails um right um but uh it's also like social media is not just a place where you like go and promote and like have fun like it's a place that's like very toxic and Mm -hmm. we're being asked to put up with that in on like for the sake of our jobs and it's like the equivalent of like a very toxic workspace and I feel like because maybe because of the pandemic or maybe it's just been going in this direction for a while but it doesn't really feel like a community anymore to me in the way that it used to uh, a couple years back I feel like now it just feels like everyone's cannibalizing each other all the time and like people are just looking for things to fight about and it it's gone past uh like the calling out actual harmful things to like finding ways to put each other down because for entertainment purposes and when you combine that with telling people they have to be on a certain in a certain place or in a certain space it can really mess with you (laughs) it can really mess with you because it's at that point it's like asking us to put up with like abuse you know um and it really sucks because I love the writing community but right now it just it's it's in shambles no I totally agree and I think I love that you said that like we're being asked to do more than our job description because it I got a visceral memory of like back in my old life when you apply for a job and the job description is there and then you get the job and you realize they're making you do like other tasks that mm-hmm. you were never told would be part of your job mm-hmm. and you're like this isn't what I was hired for right and that's totally the feeling that I get sometimes as an author being like I didn't know that I was being hired as a content creator and as a social media influencer as well as being an author like I didn't know that that's what this job was supposed to be and like okay well here's the thing like even for you and me Clarabelle you know we very obviously do feel more comfortable than the average person on social media like we in the beginning days you know you know 2016 2017 you know we thrived in that community and and had a great time and and made a lot of connections and and met each other you know um and and even for people like us who we looks like we're having a great time on twitter like we're Mm -hmm. dealing with so much toxic stuff now 
Um, and I do think Twitter's the worst. It is. For for <laughs> me, at least. And, and uh, yeah, and we've talked about it. And you said it's probably the worst for you as well. Um, and I think that one of the things, my theories about Twitter specifically being the worst for writers right now is because we... Twitter was really great at getting the word out back in the day, like five years ago, about like this bad thing is happening behind the scenes in publishing. Let's all speak out about it. So publishing has right. to address it and right. can't sweep it under the rug. It was the best medium to do that on. Mm -hmm. And so we became dependent on it and we created the social justice language that is very, very Twitter specific. Mm -hmm. um, but unfortunately like like what happened with own voices the thing we used for good has now been turned against us yeah absolutely. And people use the language to put other people down and there's this tiktok i <laughs> i'm so sorry i bring up tiktok <laughs> but there's this tiktok where a person says like what uh what like you know um bandwagon social justice warriors sound like these days and it's a person who's and and they they just like keep on saying all the social justice phrases as if they're talking about something but they never actually saying say anything yes i've seen anything that. substantial <laughs> yeah and <laughs> it's great i think uh tiffany jackson she did um, she did a she duet, duet with it, it <laughs> where she's pretending she's on a panel and she's like reacting to it and she's like oh okay <laughs> it's great it's super funny it's really uh, funny. she has the best uh tiktok reactions mm -hmm. but um that's the thing though is that like people are use are like using this language and unless you're really familiar with it you don't realize that they're not actually saying anything yeah <laughs> um which can be harmful to the people who still want to use the language to do good yeah yeah also, like you brought up a thing before in a different episode i think where you said that people noticed that they got more engagement when they got into like fights or when Absolutely. they were doing call outs mm -hmm. and now they lean into it to an unhealthy degree yeah yeah it's unfortunate because obviously not everybody is doing this right but yeah in the same way that like we know that snarky reviews and like things like that get more attention because people like that kind of stuff um there are people who take advantage of that sort of like uh twitter drama algorithm to like get more attention on their tweets um and it's a shame because like how can you tell when it's genuine versus when it's not it's very difficult to do that um i think it's hard when sort of like i've seen what bothers me is that the people who are like authors of color and like readers of color and like all these people that publishing or at least like publishing on Twitter is saying that they want to protect and they want to sort of like amplify are also getting hurt um, and don't feel safe on the platform either because of all of the things that we said like there's all of these like if you call stuff out like there are th there's these swaths of like um, racist people who will like come to you and like we know specific people who will write about it in publications and like get um, harassment sent in that person's way that happens all the time and now we're also dealing with like people can have like a petty grudge against somebody else and instead of just saying I don't like this person and like moving on with their life like they will try to make it so everyone else also does not like that person and yeah. um and unfortunately, it's all getting muddled because 
that is happening alongside like very real call outs against harmful things (laughs) Mm -hmm. and so um it's hard I read this thing the other day that you can't have like a conducive like conversation about something that's like very touchy with more than four people um oh interesting and there was like a study or something about it and I was like well Twitter (laughs) (laughs) is more than four people it's just there's no space for nuance and what's what's beginning to happen is that we're gatekeeping what marginalized authors can and can't write their own experiences people are being harassed because their experience doesn't match what somebody else's wrote is and or because they're not out <laughs> of the closet and are writing about the queer experience there's so there's just so much stuff that's happening that's not actually helping anybody it's not actually helping us progress in any way and it's taking away from like the main conversation and the problem which really starts at the corporate level of, of publishing, right? Like those are the those are the things that really need to change. And much like the the emphasis on authors being on social media, I think the emphasis should be on like how can we change it so that authors aren't responsible for so much of their marketing. Um, how can we make it so that publishers are better able to support us, especially you know authors of color who aren't a lot of times getting that in-house support and feel like they have to uh, push themselves and sell themselves on social media and are killing themselves on social media for, you know, a hundred, 200 book sales um, and like ravaging our mental health for it. And it's not, it's not sustainable. And I see that I've seen more people leave Twitter this year than like in the whole time I've been on Twitter. And it's been like over like nine or ten years at this point um and I just feel sad about it I feel sad about things changing you know yeah well change is hard especially in the past year because there's so much uncertainty that Mm -hmm. you would wish that everything else in your life could stay stable at least but that's not a reality that we get to have um and and it stinks I think Going And also going back to the original thing we started talking about of like, do you have to be on social media as an author, like in order to sell your books? Mm. Um, you brought up part of it of being like, it sucks that we're being pressured when really at the end of the day, our social media presence at most is selling like 200 copies in a year. Mm. That's a year. Not, we're, I mean, 200 copies is very generous of an estimation Mm. but that would be like in a in a year of work not not any lesser time unless you're you have a huge platform already um and you know the person who did a really great response piece to the conversation that was happening was case and calendar who they always have amazing uh uh think pieces when it comes to kind of dissecting why these issues are are more complicated than they're presented on social media. And they also come from a place where they worked in publishing. They were an editor themselves at a big five publishing house. So there's perspective there as well. And I really liked the fact that they said a lot of what you were already saying, Clarabo, which is that it in putting so much pressure on authors, it distracts from the fact that at the end of the day, the only way to get enough sales to make a huge difference on your royalty report 
you know, mm. is for the publisher to invest their efforts and their time into publicizing and marketing their Absolutely. authors. Mm-hmm. Like, unless an author is like already famous for something else, you know, like a celebrity author or an influencer who has like millions of followers already. Yeah, who's, who's gonna buy their stuff no matter what. Um, yeah, like they're not going to make a difference the way a big company is going to make a difference at all and we've been led to believe that like we are and I think part of it is like I think if we're coming from it to it with a place of like understanding that then it's okay like if you know those things and you still want to do them I understand because then at least you feel like you have a little like control in your hands right like I can't do anything about what my publisher is doing but at least I can do this like I can have fun promoting my book all that stuff but I think when it comes to the point of you feeling like you have to be on social media, even though you really don't want to, or even though it's like messing up your your mental health, um, making you depressed, all of those things, because you feel like if you don't, your book is going to fail. That's where it gets really sticky. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where it just like makes me sad because there's so many people who have already been traumatized by social media and there's nothing we can do to take that trauma away, you know, and Mm -hmm. people who were harassed by, you know, thousands of like white supremacists on there. Um, and, and, and feel like they can't leave, you know, when you think about that in the context of what if it was an office space and those people who harassed you and who sent you like threatening letters and like, death threats and all these things were in your cubicle that's what Mm -hmm. it feels like and I know it's virtual but it still feels very much like you are having to share space with people who want to do you harm at all times and Kaysen has another piece that I really uh love that's about like authors being dehumanized and oh um, yes that's a good one that one's a really good one too and it's like people expect us not to care about things being said about us and it's like an author is not an actor like we're not making millions of dollars and we're not on the set of guardians of the galaxy we are in our pajamas (laughs) at home the same as everybody else and like i think that there is this perception of like a power imbalance but it's most of the time it's a perception it's not reality because many of us are poor many of us don't have power at our publishers and it just seems like we have this power uh dynamic when really we are super vulnerable (laughs) um especially you know I'm, i'm talking specifically about bipoc authors and and queer authors here too you know um and it just gets very difficult to have to deal with all of that stuff all the time. And like, don't get me wrong, like my book came out during a pandemic. I am grateful that I had a platform, even if it was just because of the excitement that I felt from the community that helped me get through it. Did it lead to tons of sales? No, I was lucky that my publisher supported me, you know, and that they found creative ways to keep me in the public eye that they pitched me to big media and all that stuff but not everybody gets that and you know sometimes someone will look at my social media and think that it's it's all me mm-hmm. <laughs> or it's all my doing or it's all my platform 
and it's really not. If my publisher had not supported me, my book would have probably not done much. Um, and that's not to say that like, it's hard to balance like giving this advice because word of mouth is a real thing, (laughs) right? But word of mouth is going to happen organically. Like people are going to read your book and they're going to tell other people about it and it'll, it helps for you to talk about it, but it's also not worth you destroying your own sanity for being on Twitter and like the FOMO that comes with not being on there. I think I'm really glad that people are talking about this now that people are saying it's okay to step away. I've been like on like a soft hiatus for about a week now because I'm on dead deadline deadlines that aren't going to end at all this year, by the way. Um, but I feel guilty not being there. I feel bad not being there. And I get messages like, Oh, but please don't leave this place. Like, 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 okay, you love Twitter, but please don't uh, stop doing this. And like, I get the sentiment behind it that people are, are excited to interact with me and stuff. But like the pressure that I feel of having to be in all of these places at the same time is real. And it's hard. It's very hard. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the thing with the idea that like you hear a story of like an author who did a lot of, you know, viral content and it helped sell their book. Mm -hmm. That's an outlier. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem that happens constantly in publishing is that we hear these stories of outliers, a Cinderella story, an overnight success. Uh, this book sold in two weeks at a, at, at a ten house auction for a major deal and already has a movie deal or like all of these things like this this really young author like hit it big when they were, you know, too young to even drink alcohol. They we were three those... years old. Yeah. <laughs> but like, yeah, those stories are fun. I mean, they're they're really exciting to hear and listen about. But those are outliers. And But publishing loves to push the outliers as like the only story that they will talk about to the point that people have unrealistic expectations. Because yep. that's the only story they heard about before they actually entered publishing. Yep. And so we get this skewed view of what the industry can actually do for us and will actually do for us and also how much power we actually have. And it sounds really pessimistic to say it that way, but I think it's really important to understand where you actually have power and where you don't. Because then if you know that, then you're not wasting your time in places where you really have little to no power to actually make a difference. That being said, I'm not talking about you know, trying to make the publishing a more inclusive and diverse place. I think that's a place where it's worth putting effort in, even though we don't have that much power right now. Mm-hmm. But if it's something like for your mental health, you need to know what should I be doing with my spare time? Should I be on Twitter all day or should I be writing my next book? Yeah. You know, that's what I'm talking about. You have the power to write that next book and make it as good as you can so you can sell it as well as you can. Absolutely. You don't have the power to make thousands of people buy your book through Twitter so that your publisher thinks you're a success. You don't have that power. And and the thing is, too, is like, I don't want to go so far as to say it's like a conspiracy theory or anything, <laughs> but I do think sometimes publishing does pull the wool over our eyes, being like... When we go to them and say, hey, maybe you can do some more promo or marketing and them being like, oh, well, can you just build your author brand more? Because it would be so much easier for us to push you if you had a better author brand. 
And saying it like that makes us think that it's because we didn't work hard enough on Twitter and Instagram. And because of that, that's why the publisher isn't pushing us. And if only we worked harder on our social media promo ourselves, then they would notice us. But that kind of passes the buck, right? Yeah. And it's like a way for them not to have to be responsible for a thing that they should contractually be responsible for, which is marketing the books that they bought. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's I, 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 I do not think that it's on purpose by any individual within publishing. Like the people, the individual publicists and marketers, this is how they're trained. Like this is the system that they are brought into and told this is how it works this Mm -hmm. is how you talk to authors the system as a whole is what's broken yeah um exactly so so i'm not telling you guys to go and like target publicists at publishing Mm -hmm. houses they're working really hard and they're often actually trying to do so much and they don't have as much power as we think they do either but i do think that we waste we waste so much time on activities that at most will make us what like 200 bucks in a fiscal year if we sell $400 if we sell 200 books right yeah as opposed to you know you could write a book and go and sell that for like 20,000 bucks or you can learn to crochet or you can learn to crochet which I'm sorry to do it's not right all now. about money no but... I'm just no 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 I, I <laughs> like I agree with you but I'm saying like you can do other stuff with your time too like I've noticed that like I I was spending so much time on social media that I wasn't doing anything else. It was like writing my books and being on social media. And it's like, how am I supposed to be an interesting enough person to write cool books? If all I'm <laughs> doing is freaking scrolling through Twitter all day, I'm not. I'm just going to like melt my brain. Um, and I think part of it, part of the responsibility in the writing community, and I'm doing air quotes right now because like... <laughs> It's on thin ice in my brain, but (laughs) I feel like if the writing community wanted to, they could have a lot more power if they focused on amplifying the voices that needed amplification rather than on only fighting and on only calling shit out all the time, Uh which gets exhausting for everybody involved. Um, I understand that things do need to get called out sometimes. Don't get me wrong. I'm not sitting here being like, cancel culture. That's not what I'm trying (laughs) to say. What I'm trying to say is that a lot of times we say that you're trying to make space for for BIPOC authors, for queer authors, but then you don't support those authors as much as you fight against the ones that are doing it wrong. Yeah. And I feel like if the spotlight was changed because – Let's be real. How many of the people who were called out have been actually affected? They're still getting book deals. They're still out there doing their thing. And I think that if we switch the spotlight from like these people who are going to just parlay it into like a a spread in New York Times about how they were persecuted to to uplifting the voices of like black authors, of Latinx authors, of Asian authors, of queer authors, of, you know, all authors of color of native authors then we would be making a a much bigger dent than what we are right now and like some people are doing that but i feel Mm -hmm. like the effort could be much bigger and much more unifying if we started to really support those books and like created that word of mouth and that machine that sometimes you know publishing refuses to put behind us um yeah 
No, I agree. Yeah. I think the TLDR of that is when you're fighting for these things, you can't only fight something with negativity. You have to also spend just as much effort doing positive things too. Right, exactly. You also have to support the thing that you're claiming to make space for, right? Yeah. Um. So, <laughs> and that's that on that. <laughs> yeah. Go buy our books. Somebody wrote, somebody wrote to us, somebody wrote to me the other day and it was really funny because they were like, I love Write or Die so much. I haven't bought the 20 prerequisite copies yet, but I bought one copy of each of your books. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> the choices made in Wicked Fox have had far-reaching effects, and Myung's friends are about to find out the dire consequences. The forces that govern life and death have been upended, and there are supernatural entities lurking in the background that will stop at nothing to right their world. New romance and dangers abound in Vicious Spirits, the companion novel to the crowd-pleasing Wicked Fox. This contemporary fantasy duology finds inspiration in Korean mythology, culture, and K-dramas. Wicked Fox has been called a vibrant debut novel that employs Korean genre conventions for an utterly original take on the young adult fantasy by Entertainment Weekly and fresh and fast-paced by School Library Journal Review. Wicked Fox and Vicious Spirits are out now from Penguin Random House wherever books are sold. We're so excited today. We have NG Peltier on the show. NG is an anime watching, book reading, video game playing, story writing kind of girl. A devourer of words and books from a young age, she enjoys writing romance and creeping people out with the Caribbean folklore stories she grew up hearing. A Trinidadian born and raised, she currently lives in Trinidad with her mountain of ideas and characters battling each other for whose story gets to be told. Hello, Natalie, how are you? Hello. Hi, I'm good, and I am very excited to be on. Yay, <laughs> we're so excited to have you. Um, Caribbean folklore is very scary, and I think we've talked about this before. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I can't remember what it was that I think you tweeted about a particular character that you all have uh, in your folklore, and, and you was I it the witchbird? It oh, sucking, I... sucking the blood out of toes. Was it the witchbird? <laughs> I don't know which one it was. Well, but... well, we talked about we talked about carnival ones, and like we figured out that like we have the same exact characters. They're just like slightly different. Like in yeah. like Dominican carnival and like Trinidadian carnival, like we, like it's basically like the same exact uh uh characters that show up. It's just like a like a slight like change. <laughs> Um, and you know like I mean, that, that's kind of a that's like a recurrent theme across the Caribbean. Like yeah. you might have similar things, but it's called a different name. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's, so, yeah. it's really interesting, and that's it's so funny when people. Um, I guess because there's the Spanish-speaking Caribbean, like I get compared to like people in Mexico all the time, and I'm like, our cultures could not be oh, more different. Very different. <laughs> <laughs> we just happen to speak Spanish, but. <laughs> yeah. um, not um, even remotely the same <laughs> at all. Um, so your book, uh, your your debut comes out this year. I'm really excited because I, I feel like you're yeah, one of the people that I I saw sort of your whole journey on Twitter. I um, I, kind of amazing that after all this time, my release <laughs> month is here. It like is. I'm, I'm uh, kind of waiting for this forever, and I'm like, wow, okay, we're in March. It's here. It's coming. <laughs> it's coming so soon. Um, but could you tell us what yeah. your um 
what your experience was, especially as a writer who's not in the U.S., uh, did, did things, uh, you know, play out differently for you than they did for, you know, your U.S. colleagues? Or how, how did you go about, like, querying? Did you run into any difficulties not being in the States? Like, how did, how did it all pan out for you? Well, I actually queried, I started querying for the first time in 2016 when I did the first DB bit. Yay, and, then, <laughs> and and actually before DV Pit kind of you know came on the radar, I wasn't really interested in Twitter pitch contests. But when DV Pit came about, I was like, hmm, okay, I'm intrigued by this. This seems like it's specifically for me as opposed to any of the other contests that were out there. So I pitched with a completely different book. Um, I got some bites and I queried, but nothing really came of that. So I said, you know what, I'm going to try again in 2017, which was the October DB pit. Um, and I had actually finished writing Sweetan probably like a very short while before that in July 2017. <laughs> so I wasn't sure. I was like, do I want to pitch? Am I ready? Should I do this? And then I was like, you know what, just do it. <laughs> What's the worst that can happen, right? And then... When I got my likes and stuff, of course, I did my research on who I want to uh, query. So I made my spreadsheets and stuff because I'm a Virgo. So I have <laughs> folders, I have subfolders, I have spreadsheets. And in in my um, submission tracker spreadsheet, I have like the book, the genre, the agent's name, the agency, the um, submission requirements <laughs> and then I have a full uh, a column to track you know what responses I got from there I think I queried about probably 20 something agents and I think I got about I want to say around 13 rejections at the time before I saw the email from Lauren asking if, you know, if I still was looking for offer of rep and if I wanted to get on a call with her. And I remember distinctly where I was. I was in my, I was in my mother's room at the time on her bed on my laptop. And I saw her email and my sister-in-law was outside. I literally freaked out. And I'm like, so Angel just emailed me and wants to go and call. And I mean, (laughs) Lauren was one of those people who were, you know, high up on my list of agents. So there I am scrambling because I think <laughs> I had recalled that Jim McCarty had this post about what to ask on the call. So I pulled up that because I told her, yes, I'm available. And I pulled up that and I used that to ask all my questions. And, and then I did my due diligence after the call and emailed the other agents who would have had my like fills out and told them, you know, I have an offer of reps so if they could get back to me by this time. And then in... Well, Lauren's email had come in 2018. And then, yeah, I signed with her in February 2018. So we love Lauren. (laughs) Yeah, Lauren's great. Yeah, and it was an interesting experience because when I queried with Sweet Han, my first rejection was not, in my opinion, a very nice rejection. Mm. I thought it was kind of rude. And I just deleted the email completely <laughs> I, mean, I didn't even think of oh let me keep a screenshot of this or anything I just deleted it and I it kind of made me dejected because that was the first first rejection it kind of set the whole tone but then I was like you know what that's just one that's just one let's just you know keep our spirits up and see what happens so yeah. 
Definitely. And people don't need to be mean or rude mm-hmm. when they're saying no to someone. Like, yeah, I was uh, very taken aback. I was like, oh, okay. Um, all right, cool. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. That's not, I that's... mean, I'm over, I'm over it. That was so long ago. So. Yeah, I know. But those that's hard, though, because, you know, querying and putting yourself out there is very difficult. So, um agents should know better don't do that um <laughs> yeah it takes it kindness is free yeah <laughs> you know, like it's not um it's not hard to just be nice about it polite about or just it. like neutral just like right yeah just yeah. be civil <laughs> don't be a dick I, I don't know i think there was something i think there was probably a particular thing in my query that kind of set them off and i was like okay all right Whatever. Well, <laughs> delete this email. well wow. you do- you dodge that bullet, so for sure. <laughs> like exactly. Yeah, like Lauren would not sign a person who wasn't completely professional. So I'm sure it actually wasn't a big thing if it was anything at all. Like <laughs> Um, that's why I had a dead to me folder when I was querying. <laughs> Anybody annoyed me, you went in the folder. Dead oh, to me. Oh, I should have put them in there, but yeah, I just deleted it. I just like ugh, whatever forgot they existed good. <laughs> good i mean again that those are my virgo tendencies i'm like okay if i'm done with somebody I'm done with <laughs> see i'm a pisces so i just like cry for seven hours and then like i you know what this is completely off to- topic and you can put this in the bonus if you need to cap but i just found out <laughs> via tiktok that like the most uh serial killers are pisces everybody always says it's gemini's and it's not like not to say i'm gonna kill anybody i'm not but i just find that really interesting because like we're always told like oh you're the soft babies but it's like we are also full of rage like you just don't understand (laughs) yeah and the thing is i think most people think those are very cold because we don't show our emotions outwardly but on the inside we're a mess yeah Very much a mess. I can confirm that. <laughs> um, okay, so you signed with uh, Lauren in 2018, you said, right? Yes. Uh, so then okay. what happens next? Um, I think around... Uh, when was it, boy? Around... You don't have to know the exact time either. Oh, no, I have I have my document. And I <laughs> this is giving me cat vibes. <laughs> oh, right. In April 2018 was when we were ready to go on submission to our first round of editors for the first time. And that process was so strange. I mean, I know I saw other authors talking about it, but experiencing it. It's like, all right, I, because then every time an email pops up, you're like, oh my God, is this mm-hmm. a, a message from my agent? Is this good news? Is this bad news? But what I told Lauren was I, she can send it to me in batches. I prefer good news as opposed to every time there's a rejection, you tell me, I don't need to get that all the time. So, and then, yeah, um, after that, in January, 2019, was around the time where I had to revise the book again because I had gotten one R&R, but then everybody else was basically a pass. But the thing is, the feedback we got was overall good, but uh, people said either they couldn't connect with the voice or they had a similar book on their list, which basically means similar trope because I know for sure you all did not have a trend at author with yeah. a book set in trend. Uh, yeah, yep. <laughs> On your list, so just say you have similar troops and you're not sure how to 
position this. Absolutely. But, yeah, and then so revised again in January 2019 and went out on round two of submissions in April 2019. Um, yeah, and then back in like 2020 with more passes. So I had a decision to make at that point. I was like, am I going to shelve this book and focus on getting another manuscript ready to submit again or should I self-publish and I don't know it was just it was really a gut feeling that I was like I'm not done with this book yet because when I started writing this book in January 2017 it was not the best time because at that point in time my then employer was downsizing and three of us from my department me included was sent home no <laughs> so, oh <my> so, <laughs> sweet hand is that book that kind of made me have a little happy place so i have a very deep connection to the book right yeah so, i said you know what i'm gonna self-publish this book i'm not ready to let go of it yet and i spoke to lauren and she was like yeah you could do that she asked me you know um if i would think about if we would also want to submit to audio publishers, right? Because even though I'm self-pubbing it, we could do that. And I was like, yeah, I don't have a, a problem with that. And that's where having an agent, you know, is so helpful because, yeah, I could have self-published this book without the agent, but I don't think I would have gotten the UK deal or the audio deal without Lauren if it was just me. So that's when an agent comes in very handy to you know, negotiate those kinds of things because they have those connections. I don't have those connections. Yeah. That's amazing. And, and I love how like complex that ended up being because it really does show like there's not just self-pub and traditional, like completely separate paths. Like sometimes they do intersect and sometimes like it does get a little bit more like intermixed. And so I really hate when people kind of treat everything in publishing, like it's like in a specific box, you know, um, but your path definitely shows like there's more than one way, you know, what is it? There's more than one way, one way to cook, cook a cat. <laughs> is that the phrase? I've is never that heard that in my life. <laughs> it's something that definitely about a dead cat. And one way to skin a cat. Is it that? Oh, maybe it's about a dead cat for sure. Which I honestly, hate that. Oh, it's so kind of bad. I sh- I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Clarabelle. Not the best thing. But yeah. <laughs> So basically, there are different ways to get to certain parts, I guess. Let's just not use the cat. <laughs> yeah, let's not use the, the cat analogy. Um, no, that's really great. And so so then, you know, obviously, you're, you're self-publishing domestically. You have your UK deal. You have your audiobooks. Um, so what was the process then after that? Be like, because usually if someone's just self-publishing, they're taking control of everything like cover design getting some hiring someone to edit um doing their own marketing getting it you know on onto platforms to be sold um did and was all of that the same for you wanting to self-publish domestically or, or was the responsibilities more spread out because you also had these partners for audiobook in uk um, actually, no, I did most of, I had most of the work done by the time the UK publisher and audio even came into being, I guess you could say, because um, I, the reason why the UK publisher actually became a thing was when I did my cover reveal, 
I think this was a little while. I had, I revealed my cover in September. Was it September? Oh no, I revealed that I was self-publishing in September because I did it around my birthday. And then I think the cover reveal happened a while after. Mm-hmm. And then my agents emailing me to say, oh, guess what? A UK publisher saw your cover and they want you, they want, well, they want us to submit to them. And I'm like, what is happening right now? <laughs> so, so then we decided, okay, we're going to submit to some several UK publish clubs because I'm thinking okay if I get rejected by US publishers I'm not even considering that a UK publisher might want to you know acquire my book but that's what happened in December actually and then so both the news about the UK um no actually no the offers came in in December so the UK offer and the audio offer came in December after we had decided to submit. So I was surprised. I didn't expect to hear anything back until this year because I think we submitted to them around, I want to say up to November. So I really didn't expect to hear anything, anything back. And then I decided which publisher I wanted to go with. And yeah, so by that time I had done everything. I had commissioned the cover um, put up the pre-order links because I actually had the book set for worldwide rights. But now that I have the UK publisher, I just have the rights to like the US and all the territories that don't fall under them. So I had to actually go back to Amazon and uncheck all the territories <laughs> oh, that wow. fall under the UK. Oh wow! And yeah, because I don't, I no longer have the rights to that. They have the rights to that. Oh, wow. By the way, yeah, I, I mean, can't... It, I mean, it wasn't really a tedious process or anything. I just had to check off a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I love your cover so much. Who who illustrated uh, it for you? My cover designer is Lenny Kaufman, and she is amazing. Her it is so is beautiful. Just... It's Thank amazing. you. I, I love it. When I... um Before I even decided on self-publishing I had seen some of the covers she had done before and I was like wow I would love to have a cover done by her someday and then when I was doing self-publishing plan for myself I was like okay I'm reaching out to her um you know just to find out what her cost is etc and she was really great to work with because even when she sent me the sketch I went screaming into my friend's DMs and I'm like look it's not even colored or finished and it just looks amazing (laughs) I it's it's so eye-catching I know I just I just love it and because what I did is when I when we decided okay we will start this partnership together I sent her an idea of what I wanted so that scene on the front cover it's not exactly like how it is in the book, but it's inspired by a scene in the book. And I told her I wanted like a tropical feel, so bright colors. And I didn't even tell her what colors. She came up with the colors. I gave her pictures of like inspirations for my characters. She put the cat on the front. And <laughs> I love the cat. And the funny thing is, she, had the, she made the cat like a calico cat, right? And in the book, that wasn't originally the color I think I actually had the cat as black and white but I didn't tell her what color the cat was so when I saw that I'm like okay I need to change the description of this cat because I love how this cat is looking <laughs> so cute <laughs> the book. and then 
like really little details. Like she was the one who decided to put like little beam of light that's shining down on them. Because I didn't tell her through that. And I'm like, okay, she just ran with this and it's just perfect. She snapped. So. Is what she did. Yeah. <laughs> like in a good way, yeah. In a good way, yeah. Like she That's really amazing. gave it her all. I yeah, love the cover I... so much. Um, so if you've seen the cover, you probably guess that sweet hand. And if you know what sweet hand means, you'll probably guess what the story is about. But for readers who don't know uh, what the meaning of the title is and what the book is about, can you give us a quick pitch? Okay, so it's a brief synopsis of Sutan. <laughs> yeah, so after a messy public breakup, pastry chef Charisse has sworn off dating. But when she's named her sister's maid of honor, she's forced to spend time with the best man, Kiran. And the two have never gotten along. But the impending nuptials bring them closer than they ever expected. And so this book has like an enemies to lovers, dislike to love trope. <laughs> So, yes. of course, there's this whole push and pull between the hero and heroine. And actually, the cover, not the cover, sorry, the title has always been Sweet Hand. I've never changed it. Oh, I love that. that and that, and that's someone who's a, good, who's a good cook, right? Correct. That's what Sweet Hand means in Trini dialect. That's somebody who's good in the kitchen. They say, oh, this person oh. have a real Sweet Hand, you know? Mm. So. I I love that. I really love it. It's the best. I I wish you could see my face when you were saying like enemies to lovers. Like my smile just kept getting bigger and bigger. I was like they don't like each other. Yes, that's what I love. It's my favorite and food. Perfect. It's so fun to write because Mm -hmm. they are forced. Together, you are the best man. She's the maid of honor. You can't say, "Well, no, I'm not going to help plan this." It's Mm -hmm. your friend, and it's her sister, so she's not going to say no. So they have to work together, and it's like, "Oh, I don't like this person. Why do I have to see their face? It's an attractive face, but I don't want to see it." It's my favorite. I love it. I'm so excited to read this. Um. So at the time of this recording, the book has not come out yet, right? Um, so how are you How are you feeling right now? And then when you listen to it, you can hear past you and be like, ah, I was so young. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm very excited. I'm nervous. What else? What else? What else am I feeling? Yeah, excited, happy, elated, and lots of news. Because, I mean, it's my boost published book mm-hmm. so yeah is it coming but, out uh, the uk come uh, paperback coming out at the same time as the like is it all coming out on the same day or does it yes. have different so the uk and other territories us etc the ebook and the paperback are coming out on the 30th of march i have to confirm when the audio is going to be released actually okay that's yeah, I'm not too sure on that date as yet, but yep, UK and other territories are coming out on the 30th. That's so exciting. So, so I noticed that, that the that it says Island Bites Book One. Does that mean this is a series? Mm-hmm. Correct. That's, that's exciting. <laughs> um, before I signed with my, I mean, well, I have a two book deal with the UK publisher, but I always plan this as a four book series. So. <laughs> So, yeah, I can't write standalones. That's just not my thing. 
because <laughs> I get very invested in secondary characters, whether I'm writing them or reading them. So I will always plan books as a series. I will never write. Although, I mean, I shouldn't, I should probably never say never, but I'm just not the person that writes standalones. I just can't. I, uh, yeah. So I plan everything as a series. <laughs> I get that. It's hard That's to That's how I was for a long time, yeah. Mm-hmm. I could I couldn't imagine ever writing a standalone. I am now, but like it took me a while to get here. So, <laughs> I totally feel you. <laughs> I tend to my characters always have this friends and family group because that's a big part of Trini culture. Mm-hmm. And my family, I have a lot of cousins. And well, before COVID, you know, we have a lot of gatherings that are annual events. So I can't really write a character that's just by themselves. They're always going to have a support system. So I'm always going to be like, well, these people need their own book at some point. (laughs) I remember when I was younger and I loved romance novels and I would really connect to side characters and I would always want to know like what they were doing and like what their romance would look like. Um, So I'm so excited that you're doing that because... I love getting to find out like what happens with the side characters. I'm like, well, they deserve love too. (laughs) And the funny thing is when I um, had finished drafting this book and I had sent it to a couple of beta readers, I did get feedback from one person who was like, "Mm, I think your secondary characters are overshadowing you. (laughs) (laughs) Your uh, main characters. So I kind of had to, when I was revising, pay attention to that. And that is very ironic because feedback that I had gotten from one of the publishers was like, we want more stories for the secondary characters. So I'm like, wow, opinions really are subjective. Yes. One person is telling me, okay, there's too much <laughs> happening with the side characters. And another is like, we want more. So I'm like, um, okay. <laughs> Which one is it? <laughs> That's why at the end of the day, I take feedback, but I do what I want to do. (laughs) It's really my choice because if I take everybody's feedback, it's just going to be confusion. No, that's really good advice in general. It's like, you can't please everyone. So you have to do what you feel is right. Like your instincts are what, you know, matters most and you need to trust them. Yeah. So what drew you to romance specifically as a genre? Was it like because you just love happy endings or because you read a lot of it as a child like what was the thing that made you be like I want to write a book and I want it to be romance um I am a very avid romance reader that's mostly what I read and I've I mean I love to read in general and I've been reading since I could read I guess you'll see (laughs) but I guess when I got into my teens I think I found Probably a Mills and Boons romance book at my grandmother's house or something. It was literally falling apart. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. I will read it. And then, yeah, it was kind of hooked. It's kind of hooked. I don't know. Maybe it is the happily ever after part that drew me to it initially. But I don't know. I love romance. That's mostly what I read these days. And, I mean, I am trying to catch up on some of my fantasy books that I have. And I actually have your book, Cat. <laughs> I have it. There's a lot of romance in it. <laughs> there is and food. I have, I have it. I have it. And but the thing is, 
I always say, I have a bunch of YA books, and I'm like, I say, I'm going to read these, I'm going to get to them, and then I just get swept up in my usual reading of adult romance, but I'll get it, I will get it. That's, that happens to us a lot, I think, as avid readers and, and writers, is that like our TBR will never be empty, it's just a fact of life. <laughs> when you read one, you're buying like, what, four or five more, and then add ox on top of that, and it's like, oh my god. Definitely. Definitely. So I'm I'm curious though because in your bio it says you like creeping people out with Caribbean folklore (laughs) stories. Do you think you'll ever write a a book that incorporates that, like go into fantasy or even horror or something like that? Oh, I I have already Uh written one. Um, which I've been calling my Sukunya book for years. I actually have to revise it because my agent read it and she gave me her her notes. But because I was focusing on other stuff and Sweet Han, I have not actually finished those revisions. But yeah, I have, um, of course, there's romance in it. So it's like kind of urban fantasy, paranormal romance. So that one, my Sukunya book, yeah. And well, for those who don't know, a sukunya is like a Caribbean bloodsucker. Usually they take the form of like a, a old woman who sheds her skin and then becomes, turns into a fireball and flies around feeding off of her victims. But I made my sukunyas various ages, so they're not just old. <laughs> so, so I draw from the inspiration of our folklore, but I put my own twist on it. So I have all sorts of folklore characters and they're duens, which to me are the scariest ones because I think duens are actually the... Is it that it's children who died before being baptized, so they kind of come back as faceless creatures with their feet turned backwards. So I, yeah, I creep myself outright in those because, <laughs> oh, little scary kids are scarier than anything else in my mind. <laughs> like when you yep. see scary children in horror movies, I'm like, nope, I don't like this. Ghost children are the scariest for sure. So like doesn't matter what the culture is. Terrifying. So, so yeah, I have a lot of our folklore characters in there. So it's finished. I just have to revise it that's so scary and i think that's the character that we were talking about probably because yeah that sounds similar to our witches there there are differences but they also suck blood and they are old women who shed their skin and they keep them in like a bucket of like different (laughs) stuff by the by the bed (laughs) like they take their skin off and like leave their skin soaking basically um and then they turn into birds though not fireballs so um but yeah, it's it's and then we have we have duendes, which sounds like uh, your scary Duende. kids. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> yeah, we were we were talking about. I don't know if this was in, during the interview, but how like Caribbean culture is very like an, um, a huge umbrella um, with like yeah. diff- uh, slight differences here and there. But I'm really excited for those because they're so scary. Like really, I don't know. Our ancestors were bored. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because we have sukuyas, we have duens, we have, well, Papua, he's supposed mm. to be like a forest protector, so he has, his upper body is like a man's body, but then his lower body is like that of a, I guess a deer, because he has like hooves and horns on his head, and <laughs> yeah. 
it's interesting. So I had fun writing that. I just have to revise it. And maybe it will be published someday, I hope. Yeah, we're going to keep our eye out for that because <laughs> I, I love to be scared from books only. I won't watch the movie if, when it comes out. Yeah, <laughs> I will read a horror book, but I horror movies are not for me. Nope. Same. I can't nope. do it. <laughs> too much. And, I, too and much. I, I know I've heard people saying that your book, Clary Bell, is kind of scary. Is it scary? No, my book is not scary. scary. It's for babies. It's not. It's, I mean, there's there's ghosts, and the ghosts aren't all nice or anything, but it's. I've read much scarier books. Yeah. But I will say that it's probably scarier than you think it is, Clarabelle. Right. But, well, it's meant to be somewhat scary for the age range, right? So it's right. not meant to be, like, super scary, but um, there are so there, – there, um, there are some adults who said that the book scared them. <laughs> I guess it just Aww. depends on your threshold for that kind of thing. Um, yes. <laughs> it is dependent. And, and also, everyone has different things that scare them. Mm-hmm. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'll, I'll probably be entertained by your book. I don't know. My nephew might be scared because he's going to be eight this year. Um, and I tried to get him to read Tracy Batiste Jumbie's books because I read those books. I read all three, and I love them. And I'm like, yeah, Gabriel, you should read this. And he's like, mm. <laughs> I don't think he's ready to. I don't think he's ready to read those yet. Oh no! But, but yeah, that's, that's so fair. Cute. <laughs> that's totally fair. <laughs> For Luceli Luna, ghosts are more than just the family business. Shortly before Halloween, Luceli and her best friend Sid cast a spell that accidentally awakens malicious spirits wreaking havoc throughout St. Augustine. Together, they must join forces with Sid's witch grandmother Babette and her tubby tabby chunk to fight the haunting head-on and reverse the curse to save the town and Lucelli's firefly spirit before it's too late. With the family dynamics of Coco and action-packed adventure of Ghostbusters, Clarabel A. Ortega delivers both a thrillingly spooky and delightfully sweet debut novel with Ghost Squad. Order today at buyghostsquad.com. For Luceli Luna, ghosts are more than just the family business. Shortly before Halloween, Luceli and her best friend Sid cast a spell that accidentally awakens malicious spirits wreaking havoc throughout St. Augustine. Together, they must join forces with Sid's witch grandmother Babette and her tubby tabby chunk to fight the haunting head-on and reverse the curse to save the town and Luceli's firefly spirit before it's too late. With the family dynamics of Coco and action-packed adventure of Ghostbusters, Clarabelle A. Ortega delivers both a thrillingly spooky and delightfully sweet debut novel with Ghost Squad. Order today at buyghostsquad.com. Okay, so everyone who's on the show tells us their most embarrassing publishing-related story or something that they wish they'd known before they started. So you can tell us either or, you can tell us both, it's up to you. Um, well, I think, well, for me, something that was embarrassing is related to my self-publishing journey. So, of course, when I decided to self-publish, I had I reached out to some other self-published authors that I'm familiar with, who I'm friendly with, and they've been self-publishing for some while, for advice. 
But even though I got advice, obviously there were things I kind of had to figure out on my own. And one such thing I figured out by a little error is that self-pubbed authors do not have pre-orders for their paperback. Oh, no. <laughs> so, so like, unlike with the ebook, when when I hit publish, it will show up as for pre-order. I did not know that for the paperback. So oh, the wow. paperback was accidentally published in September because when I hit published, it showed that it was live. And I'm like, wait, this doesn't say pre-order. Why is it live? And I had to scramble <gasps> all in a panic to unpublish it. Oh, no. I didn't. I so, had no idea. Yeah I, well, yeah. I didn't know that until it happened to be right. So I was like, okay, this is a learning experience, note to self. So that means I have to publish like the US paperback probably a few days before release day so people could buy it and have time to get it because I'm like, no ways in my research told me that there was no pre-order available because of course I'm accustomed to seeing pre-orders for right. like trade paperbacks so I just assume okay this could be done for self-publishing but yeah surprise to me that was not the case <laughs> I wonder why I wonder why it's I, not I really don't know that's kind and of annoying the, and actually. the thing is that was uh-huh. very panic inducing for me because I'm like uh the book is still being edited if somebody had accidentally clicked buy, they would not have gotten the final version of the book. It would oh have been no. like a placeholder file. Oh, no. <laughs> so, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good thing it you would... caught it and didn't, like, <laughs> gonna go to sleep now. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I always check. So when I, um, when it said it was live, I assume live for pre-order. So when I go on Amazon, I'm like, oh, it's not showing the little pre-order button. It's showing buy now. So I'm like, no, I need to Oh my gosh, my heart would have oh. fell out of my butt. That is oh, yeah, a yeah, lot. Yeah, yeah, that that was a moment. And actually, another author who I follow on Twitter just tweeted about her same. She had that same experience because she has traditionally published books with, I think it's Karina, and then she decided to self-publish one of her books. And she actually tweeted the other day that she did the same thing that I did. So I was like, yeah, um, I did this back in September. So you're not alone. Yeah, oh she, she also didn't know that there's no pre-order for paper boxes self-publish one. I had no idea. That's a good lesson. It is a good like lesson. Share. Yeah. yeah. Because I feel like I didn't see anybody, who, any of the self-published authors who I follow ever speak about that. So they probably just, mm-hmm. I don't know, knew and it never happened to them. So yeah, I had to learn the hard way. Well, aren't they so special? <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much for for talking to us and sharing your stories with us. And, um, you know, everyone definitely go order the prerequisite 20, 20 copies. copies. Um, you know, if you want to do 20 domestic, 20 UK, we wouldn't frown at that. Or 10 uh, and totally 10 fine. if you have you do 10 to. And 10. You could do 10 and 10. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Natalie, can you let everyone know where they can find you on the Internet? Oh, yes. Well, I'm mostly on Twitter at Trini Elf. And I'm also on Instagram with the same handle at Trini Elf. And all those, awesome. Great. All those links will be in our show notes as well. Uh, Natalie, thank you so much. We are so excited for Sweet Hand. We already have our copies because this is airing after the book comes out. So we're <laughs> hugging our copies right now. And we're so excited for you. So excited to see what's next um, in your series and with your creepy books. And thanks again for talking to us. <laughs> thank you for having me. 
Thanks for listening to Write or Die. Be sure to check out Wicked Fox by Kat Cho. And Ghost Squad by Clarabel A. Ortega. And while you're at it, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review. See you next time, Wordies. And don't forget to spread the word.